Yo! Stop your grinning and drop your linen. Found them. They're alive? Unknown. It looks like all of them. Over at the processing station. Sub-level three, under the main cooling towers. Looks like a goddamn town meeting. Let's saddle up, eh, Palm? Aye, sir. This is Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, J.M. Prater, and I am joined by Patrick Green. Hey, hey, hey. Let's rock! And today we are talking about heroes of science fiction. Talk to me about, because people hear my voice, they've heard my voice for over two years now. <laughs> tell me, tell me, tell me about you and some of your earliest sci-fi heroes. Yeah, so, uh... I mean, I know it's kind of predictable to say this, but my first sci-fi hero was was Ripley. She was the first person that I totally fell head over heels, just like in awe of. I think she's incredible, and I know we'll talk more wow. about her, you know, later on in the episode. Um, the mm-hmm. other movie that I was just completely, completely obsessed with as a kid was was Empire Strike. You know, was was the Star Wars yes. Empire Strike was uh, Empire Strikes Back. And uh, and I think part of that is because um, you saw this like incredible transitioning happening with the with the sort of heroic protagonists. Like they were all going through mm-hmm. these huge um, trials and these these tests and coming out of it stronger. And I you know I, I always loved Han. I mean I have a tattoo of him on my arm as a as a bird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I really feel very strongly yeah, identified yeah. with that character. But yeah, um, you know, I, I love how there are things to other heroic characters, and that especially Leia, that is just transcendent and really really remarkably written. Um, so she was a huge hero for me too. Um, I, I'll say my other kind of early hero was uh, was Logan, was Wolverine. Um, really interesting. Yeah, I, I was a huge comic. I still am. I'm a huge comic book dork. I'm, I'm just a dork in general, but that's one of the things yeah. I'm dorky about. Um, and I feel like part of what's so amazing about Wolverine is it's like he is so existentially dark. You know, like he is, uh, he's somebody who you get the sense that like, if he could kill himself, like he would have done it a million times, but he like literally is cursed and he can't do that. You know, like we meet him and he's this like itinerant alcoholic basically, um, Mm -hmm. who's Mm -hmm. like completely has nothing to live for. And he's, and he's inflicting pain on himself basically just to feel alive, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. we've all been in points in our lives to varying degrees and in different aspects where we can relate to that. Um, Mm -hmm. but what's amazing about Wolverine is that um, in spite of all that, he has some of the most transcendently heroic moments in all of in all of comics, mm-hmm. and he still does, mm-hmm. you know, to to this day. Um, and and I think the the recent film was such a such a perfect encapsulation of that character because it was like totally it you you saw this this guy who. Um, was fighting death for the first time, you know, like he was fighting mm-hmm. against that, knowing that his time was running mm-hmm. up and knowing that like everything was falling apart. Um, and I think that was a really touching sort of elegy for his character. So that was somebody else also just cause he's short and hairy. So I always kind of looked up to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You got the hair too. I know. Yeah. You got I the... look like him. Um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. So that was, that was another one really for me too. Also, like I used to love the silver surfer, fantastic four kind of stuff as a kid. Like mm-hmm. I used to think, mm-hmm. um, the, the, like the universals and the whole cosmic aspect to that was just incredibly cool and, and really, uh, transporting. But, um, but at the end of the day, honestly, like every single character that I mentioned, it pales in comparison to Ripley because she, she was, and is, and probably will always be my, my actual, hero you know in terms of films mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh we'll talk about that later but that's that's kind of my background in terms of heroes that's awesome um i think 
for me, uh, and I don't know what category, this is going to come from left field because I haven't said it to you yet. <laughs> I don't know what category this movie falls into because it's not science fiction, but it's not fantasy, but it's not reality either, and it's Mary Poppins. Oh, shit! Um, yeah, and I, I, she's one of my earliest memories, and I remember feeling like she, she engaged wonder she brought these kids something that they hadn't experienced before. And this is when I was very little. I engaged um, Mary Poppins. And uh, I feel like she helped raise me. And mm. In some ways, similar to Ripley, which again, we will discuss later. But um, there was something about Mary Poppins that really just... I felt like when she was singing, she sang to me. I felt like when she was giving advice to the children, she was giving it to me. And she hasn't stayed with me in terms of she stays with me in a nostalgic way, whereas someone like Ripley or Deckard or, you know, Rachel, which we'll get into, continues to stay with me and, and kind of as a building block, mm -hmm. as a foundational, mm -hmm. as a core of who I am. Um, Mary Poppins was one of the first, like, fantasy, sci-fi, whatever character she is, um, I guess fairy tale i guess you could say yeah, that's a fairy I, I, i'm gonna tale. go out on a limb and say she's fucking sci-fi i mean she's got a <laughs> yeah. parrot umbrella that flies she can levitate totally. she can she yeah. can become a poltergeist basically you know she can like manipulate yeah. matter I, I think like under any conceivable definition a she's probably an, an alien um and b she's totally a science <laughs> fiction character and she's so yeah. awesome she's a badass she's a ripley-esque heroine right like she shows yeah. up she doesn't yeah. take any bullshit you know she makes them yeah. all take the medicine Right, she's like she like teaches them these really great life lessons. She's a hero to these kids, um, and she's not a hero because she's of what she does with what she can do. She's a hero because of her character, her strength of her yeah. character. Not, um, not and it's kind of funny. She's you know? Pretty, not just because she has a great voice, not just because she's likable. Like she she fights against a lot of those things. Like she's mm -hmm. very sort of done up in this very Victorian thing. She's not like in a revealing outfit. She's very strong. She doesn't need Dick Van Dyke's character to like be happy. Mm -hmm. You know, like she yeah, uh, yeah she's self sufficient. So she's actually and interestingly proto Ripley in some ways. She is, and she if anything she puts Burke and Bert in. I said Burke. That was a Freudian slip. <laughs> she puts Bert in his place in some she ways. Does. Yeah, she's fucking like, badass. And, she, and when she went into that uh, one house with the guy laughing on the ceiling, she's like, "Oh my god, like yeah. this is ridiculous." She put all of them in their place. Yeah. Like people were like, "Whoa, sorry, Mary Poppins. Sorry, yeah. sorry." Yeah, you she's know? in her force. Um, yeah, she's a yeah, she's she, totally forced to be reckoned with. She commanded attention. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there's she's one of my earliest um, heroes uh, in that kind of sci-fi realm. Yeah. Um, but before I go, let's let's kind of alternate. So yeah. what about you? Who's next? Who's next for me? Um, man, let me think. In, in terms of science fiction specifically, or outside of or I, I, I would say let's stay in the realm of science fiction say, fantasy. All right, so. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Predator, but I feel like that's kind of a it's kind of, it's kind okay. of a difficult sell. I don't, I don't know. I mean, because he's sort of like so obviously a hero. It's funny you think back. Yeah. A lot of the characters that are the most memorably heroic to me are the ones that you don't. Oh, so here's an example. Okay, so Spider Man. I know I'm going back to comics again. He's kind of science. You know, he goes in outer space occasionally. Yeah, science fiction. Totally, totally. So to me, like Peter Parker, you know, as like this like kind of dorky. Uh, kid who felt like, you know, I was kind of flitting between different social groups and never really found my groove and kind of like, you know, was uh, a little bit of a bookworm. Like, I, I, the fact that, like, that there was a superhero who, like, could 
trapeze through buildings and fight these incredible villains. I mean, he has like one of the best rogues galleries ever, you know, mm-hmm. um, come out on top, but still at the end of the day, be like too nervous to ask a girl out or, you know, be like stressed out about getting his homework done on time. Like the fact that there was a character like that for me was super important because I feel like the, mm-hmm. in the sort of classical heroic tradition that we get from like, you know, back from like Virgilian times and Homer, like the heroes, like Perseus, for example, like he's like kind of larger than life from the very outset. And to the point, mm-hmm. a lot of those heroes are literally part God, you know, um, mm-hmm. like they are, they are like, they start off like kind of like unassailably strong. What's amazing about the Marvel heroes and, and subsequent science fiction stuff uh, is that um, the heroes are so much like us. Like we see ourselves mm-hmm. so much. Yes. And to, yes. as a kid, like that was so important to me to, to look at somebody like Spider-Man or look at somebody like Wolverine and say, uh, you know, like they're just at, they're having just as hard a time as I am. You know what I mean? Like, like mm-hmm. they're not like these incredible, you know, um, superheroic people by nature. Like they find their heroism and they act on that. Um, if mm-hmm. they can do it, then like maybe I can too because I kind of you know am like that you know in my own personal life. So yeah, so Spider Man is a good one for me. Also, I want to say briefly, the fucking Venom movie, like I cannot even express how excited I am about this Venom movie that's coming out because Venom to me was like always one of the coolest characters, and I, I have all the symbiote mm-hmm. books. You know, I was obsessed with Maximum Carnage. Was like one of my first the Mark Bagley issues, like some of my first big comic book memories. Um, and the fact that like that character is getting treated as like a legit protagonist in a film with Tom Hardy, that's supposed mm-hmm. to be modeled after the aesthetics of David Cronenberg. I'm like, come on, like, yeah. what fucking amazing is this movie going to be? So that's yeah. not here nor there, but that's sort of my. <laughs> so what, what about? That's awesome. I don't. To be honest, I don't. I'm not a comic book guy. I never. I've always been a movie freak. Yeah. Um, I don't know too much about Venom, yeah. but uh, except for the horrible. F- Thing they did with him in Spider-Man Three. Oh, God, it's so bad. Um, it was just horrible. That movie was awful. Um, I'm, I'm very miserable. But, <laughs> um, but I would say within the realm, Superman's mm. Superman. I remember as a kid, um, as I was growing older, and I saw I saw Superman with Christopher Reeves, and and even the embodiment of Superman with um, Henry Cavill, who I identify with more. He's this incredibly gifted person who doesn't know where he belongs in the world. Right. right. Um, and he and he's trying to understand humans. He's not like this god where he's has a sense of perfect morality. He doesn't know really understand what morality is. I think he's a genuinely good person, but he's not just a regular person. Um, and just that that struggle for where do I belong in the world? I don't know. And he can do ev- and his powers make him strange to people. They his powers do not endear him to people. They they frighten people. They frighten him. Right. Or people. Right. Right. Um, he's almost like too much remember- to process. Like he he's, he is. Yeah. yeah. And and it's this okay yeah you can do these things but so are you a threat to us are you a threat to us are you sure you're not a threat to us and I remember um, certainly in the Christopher Reeves films which is what I grew up mm-hmm. with but really really more so in or well let's go to Christopher Reeves first like in I think it was Superman two where he just wanted to be normal and he goes into the thing and he becomes normal and he he wants to love Lois right and he goes he goes to the um, that diner and he gets beat up by the guy. Um, and then what funny, which is later on, he kind of does this revenge thing where he goes back to that same diner after he has his powers back and he beats the guy up, Uh which didn't seem very Superman-ish to me. It seemed very morally ambiguous. It seemed like, so Superman just took revenge out on this guy. 
Um, anyways, um, but Superman, really, where does he belong in the world? And that's something I still struggle with today. Like, where do I belong? This I feeling of being an outsider I, kind of like – Totally, yeah. totally. As someone who is you know, biracial, as someone who is in the LGBT community, yeah. you know, um, that – and I think comic book characters really uh, – uh, put a spotlight on mm-hmm. that. Like, what does it mean to be different? And not just with be, being someone of different color, being someone maybe who who is smarter than everyone else, someone who 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 gets into different things, someone who what what is that like? Mm-hmm. How do we treat? How does general population treat someone who's different? Right. I, I, I think that like different. that to me. Have you read Watchmen? You've probably seen the movie, but have you read the, the actual? Uh, I haven't read the comic. Oh my god, you you, you got to read it because it it it, goes, it it deals with those themes in such an incredibly beautiful way. Especially mm-hmm. do, like Doctor Manhattan is like the embodiment of everything that you just talked about. Like he's yeah. he's like literally too powerful to exist in this world anymore, and because yeah. of that, he's just sort of marooned. You know, it's funny yeah. you're talking yeah. about Superman. Like a part of me wants to challenge you on that because I, I I I've never I have never gotten into that character, and I, I've wanted to for my like literally my entire life. Like you know everybody, it's like Superman is the iconic superhero. But but, you know, there's sort of well, there's there's two types of people in the world. There's people who say there's two types of people in the world, and people who don't say that. But but for a minute, I'm going to be the first category. I'll say there's two types of people in the world. There's people who grew up Superman fans and people who grew up Batman fans. Um, and for me, and especially for my wife, for Micah, who I know you know, um, like we are like a, we're like very much a Batman family. Like that was somebody that we both really really looked up to a lot growing up. Um, and I don't know why it's like – it's sort of like you know when you're a kid, you, you get into these like arguments with people in the schoolyard about like you know whether DC or Marvel is better. And then like you know you just like punch each other and run away, and it's like you know you don't get anywhere with it. Um, it's the same thing with Superman and Batman. It's like because because they're so antithetical to each other in so many ways. Yet yes. in some ways they're very similar. But like obviously Superman is basically a messiah stand-in, right? Like he's like mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. another world. He's like almost illimitably powerful. Mm-hmm. Um. Whereas Batman is uh, is like completely human, obviously, and and he only through using his wits and his physicality and his like worksmanship, and his and his incredible amounts of money, <laughs> which is sort of sad, you know, is able to become a proto superhuman, you know, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But so to me, like because Batman was always one of my huge heroes growing up and still is to this day. Um, I always thought of Superman as this kind of cop out. It was like he was a magic animal or something you know because like in, in the marvel universe like like the people that i talked about like wolverine for example you know he has a genetic mutation but he also was like you know the subject to this incredibly invasive stuff in, in a lab or um you know spider-man like was bitten by a radioactive spider but other than that he's just this sort of like you know nerdy kid uh, mm-hmm. superman like starts off as a superhuman and to me that was problematic although hearing you talk about it now i'm hearing that there are things in it that i think i've been skipping over because i've kind of like overlooked them in the past so uh mm-hmm. i, I mm-hmm. for the first time on this podcast admit that uh, i am going to try to become a superman fan and i will let you know <laughs> but see i'm a batman fan too okay. i'm a total okay. batman fan um and i always have been um superman resonates differently with me um and i think part of it is and some real talk here some childhood stuff here I had a really, 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 really rough childhood. Mm-hmm. It was horribly, horribly rough. And some of those years, um, I spent in solitary confinement for three and a half years. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't in a box or anything, but it was in a room. Mm-hmm. Um, and my 
my desire for Superman was a desire for a savior, for someone to save me from where Holy I was. Holy shit, wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and Superman and Wonder Woman were those, especially even Wonder Woman too, because Wonder Woman is unequivocally good. Right. And she unequivocally wants to do good. Right. And she wants to, who are the bad guys? Tell me who they are and let's go, you know, um, and this kind of a strange aside, but even the, what I love about the new Wonder Woman movie is she had this realization that there's so much of them, these bad guys I see in you and you say you're the good guy. Mm-hmm. You know, she sees this moral ambiguity or this this complicated. Humans are complicated right. because she's not a human. She's sort of a proto guy. Right, right. Um, she's a lot like Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, she can she can fly as well. Um, and but really, my my love for Superman was I fell in love with this idea that I wanted someone to save me from what I was going. So through. so when and you were so, when you were a kid, were you aware of that, or did you just like the character? Like, did, did you did you? No, I, no. I was completely aware. I would dream oh, about. So you, so you you actively wanted to be saved from it. Yes. And, okay. Yes. Yeah. And Superman watching those movies was I could pretend that Superman has taken me in his arms and he were flying above the clouds right. and he's going to drop me off somewhere that's safe. Um, wow. And, uh, and, and Batman, I love in a different way because Batman engages the darkness with mm-hmm. us because we, we all have it, everyone. And, and Batman is really ambi- ambiguous. And sometimes you don't know if he's a good guy or a bad right. guy. And sometimes his rage and his anger and his vengefulness, um, take, overshadow everything else but i think batman at his heart is really good he just is a hothead you know? yeah and, well, and um, also it's, the thing with batman is he's fundamentally motivated by a need for revenge like even though his his values and his morals are really lofty like even though he cares about doing the right thing it's coming from a place that's fundamentally trying to regain this lost innocence that he had as a kid and trying to like keep yes. that from happening to other people so no matter what yes. he's always tinged by this sense of like regret which I find really attractive as a character, but I, I, I agree. It leads to him getting it over his head. But what's so cool about his character and, and what I have such issues with in the new Zack Snyder films is that um, he's so um, values-driven that like he is sort of always in more danger than he has to be just because, for example, he doesn't use guns. You know, like It would be so easy for him to just shoot – to blast the Joker's head off with a shotgun. You know what I mean? Like He could have done that how many millions of times? Mm-hmm. But, be- but, but because he's so principled, he chooses not to do that. And it's ridiculous. It is a ridiculous standpoint to be in. But that's why he's a fucking hero. You know? That's mm-hmm. what's heroic mm-hmm. about him. Is, 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 he, yeah. is, he, is he says, it is not worth – bringing myself down to the level of the criminals and of the regular people in the world. Um, mm-hmm. I will fight from a more morally high ground for mm-hmm. more morally high ideals. Um, and like that, that to me is a, is an incredibly heroic trait. Actually, if, if it's okay with you, um, can we talk about Deckard a little bit? Because you said something in the, in your, when you were talking uh, a minute ago about how it's unclear a little bit. Um, sometimes. Totally. Totally. And, uh, yeah. and so, so I'm just curious for you, like, do, do you, what, what are your thoughts on Deckard? vis-a-vis being a hero um i identify a lot with deckard um i uh deckard almost like superman he doesn't know where he belongs in the world Mm -hmm. um deckard has these skills um that he's very good at but i think he's also tormented about being so good at what he does um you can see when he kills zora and we talked about this in our last episode a little bit there's this look in his face like what have i done Mm -hmm. um and you see this Zora running through the glass and she wants to live and she's 
Also, all she wants to do is live. Mm-hmm. And he's like, nope, sorry, you can't live because they told me you can't. And that means I have to end your life. Um, and you can tell – you're and, right. But, the whole time you can tell that he hates the situation that he's in. Like every time they make eye contact, like when they're running through the streets and like she sees him, like he does not look like a predator. Like he, he looks like no. he's uh, – he, he has no choice, but he has to do this. And yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, and even then later on when – um, Brian, the boss, mm-hmm. his boss is like, you got th- four, three more. And he's like, two more. I have two more. He goes, no, the skin job at Tyrell, you know, um, clearly Deckard is, you see him, he's reconciling something saying, okay, maybe she's a replicant, but you can't do this to her. You cannot do this to her. You know, she's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's always been there or whatever. Um, but yeah, Deckard is convoluted. I don't know if I see Deckard as a hero. I see Deckard as this kind of lost boy. And I think Rachel's the hero of, of Blade Runner. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Oh, cool. Okay. Rachel. Cool. And because Rachel tells Deckard, Rachel engages love with Deckard, something Rachel wakes Deckard up with love. And he was like, I love this girl. Now we got to get our asses out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about Roy, but I'll let you talk about Roy. Or sure, what, sure, sure. What you think? Well, but but before we do, um, so here and and I, I I first off I would love to talk about this more much more in depth in further episodes of this of the podcast. But you know you know my issue with Deckard, at least in the movie, is that I cannot stop uh, thinking of his first love scene with Rachel as as anything but rape. Like it really bothers me a lot. Um, and, and I thought like, you know, like, cause as a kid, I, I used to feel so uncomfortable with that, but I didn't have like the terminology to know why it was so uncomfortable. Um, but now like looking at it as an adult, like we just watched it again last night, my wife and I, and I was like, I was like, you know, shifting in my seat. Like, it's so, it's so weird. That he's like commanding her as like a synthetic basically to, to like submit to him. So how, how do you, like, how do you just out of curiosity, like how, how do you deal with that? Like, did you, am I reading it differently than you? Uh, you are, and I, I touched on this on my last episode when we discussed Blade Runner with Ryan Allen of Blade Runner Reality. Um, here's how I see that scene, and, and I said this on the last podcast, I'm going to say it again. I'm a feminist, and I'm not saying that in, oh, I'm a feminist. I am. No, I know you are. Yeah, I, as am I. I, am, I, am, I will defend women's rights. I will defend the equality of women, and just because a woman's dressing the way you think is inappropriate doesn't mean that she deserves to be raped, or whatever. I will defend to the hilt. I'll defend how people talk about Ripley. I mean, I am... But here's how I see that scene. Mm -hmm. I think that um, Deckard knows that Rachel feels the same way, but Rachel's so overcome by who, sh- who am I now? Who am I? I'm not. I I am not Tyrell's niece. Mm-hmm. She's she's morose. She's belligerent. She's and Deckard slams the door and he's like, "No, you're gonna stay here and you're gonna feel these feelings because I'm feeling them too. Mm-hmm. And we're both we're both in the same boat trying to figure out who we are. Right. And we've discovered this thing. So look at me and talk to me and say you want me because I know you do. And yeah, you, listen you, you that, listen to how rapey that sounds. Even when you just say it. Um, I, I, you know? yeah, I, I, I think I don't hear it as rapey yeah. because he's saying, no, look, li- live with your feelings. Talk about your feelings right now. And he's not saying open your legs. He's not saying I want to fuck you. Mm-hmm. He's saying, no, deal with your emotions. Talk about it. He doesn't really push himself on her. Um, he's just saying, and, it, but I agree with you too. It's, it's not 
and I'm also viewing this through a man's eyes yeah. too. Um, so I can't say that just because I view it that way doesn't mean that's the appropriate way to be viewed. Right, right, right. Doesn't doesn't mean it doesn't come off as rapey. Doesn't mean it doesn't come off as maybe being highly an inappropriate scene. Yeah. Um, it doesn't. It also changes the way you view. Decker it does. Too. It does. So 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 I, I should clarify my point. I I I think it comes across pretty rapey. Um, and and I, and I also say that from a fundamentally feminist standpoint, I'm totally in the same boat as you. And that like like that's something that's always bothered me about that scene. But I love Deckard as a character. I think he's a really complex mm-hmm. guy. I don't think it's rape, and I and I agree with you. I think it's something about breaking through and like embracing who who they are in that moment and waking each other up from the sort of existential funk that they're in. I, I think and I think that's the way it's written. I think that's the intent of that scene. But it's like impossible for me to watch that and not feel skeeved out by it. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping that like o- o- as time goes by and the more I, I kind of try to like watch it and reconcile that, the more I will come to terms with it. But part of me feels also like it was sort of intended to um, come across like a little bit borderline because because it's, it's, it's yet another way of saying that Deckard isn't this perfect heroic protagonist character like he is a really burned out complex dude who happens to be gifted at what he does yes um and happens to have been pulled back you know for one last job kind of thing um but uh and it's and it's interesting too because let's think about it what is he gifted at doing Killing and murdering, tracking down yeah. and killing. Well, retiring. He's yeah. a bounty hunter. He retires. He's he's a bounty hunter, right. and um, he has to live with that. He has to live with, even though Zora is a replicant, and really, I mean, I, they're robots essentially. I mean, they're they're engineered humans with, you know, with you know implants in their heads. They're not people. Mm-hmm. They're they're robots. They're a, a version of androids. Um, but he has to go to sleep and close his eyes and see her face. Um, and even, you know, I think about um, after when he kills Pris. Um, and Pris is being pretty crazy with him. You She's know? so scary. Um, Holy shit. Her whole like, last the, few minutes are so frightening to me. Totally. Oh. And it's a total 180 degree turn from how she was introduced as this quiet, demure, but capable she was she's not, she's a pleasure model. She's not built for that. Mm-hmm. But of course she's 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 learned past that pleasure model ideals. Um, and, and the end when he kills her and she's flipping around and acting crazy, um, there's this, the camera pans on her and she's sad. Yeah. Her life is over. And then you see Roy looking at her, just devastated. Just broken. That his yeah. Is gone. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And Rooker Howard, I, I mean, you talk about like great actors. I mean, Holy shit. The way he sells that moment. I mean the whole the whole last like thirty totally. minutes of that film it's like some of the best acting I've seen in my entire life, like the, yeah. the and the way that he you get a sense immediately that he realizes that he's the last one, you know like he's looking at her and he's like that is it like I am and and he knows that he, his hand is all fucked up he knows that he's dying and he's looking at her and he's saying this is the end, um mm-hmm. and she was a beautiful soul you know who has seen things that humans will never see on earth you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where – and he's looking at her and like, he's getting a sense of mortality and realizing that his is coming up too. But what's so cool is that it would be so easy and facile as an actor to play that scene in a way that's like super uh, emotive and is um, you know, like, like why did – you know, why should she take it from me? But he doesn't. Like he, he plays it like it's a fucking joke, you know? Yeah, like he, yeah. he, he's, like he becomes this wacky – uh, you know, like Commedia dell'arte character, you know, dancing, he mm-hmm. takes his shirt off and is dancing all over the place, um, yeah. and moving in such interesting ways. And, 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 
you know, I, I think part of why that mon- – I hope at some point we can do a whole episode just about his last monologue. But like I, – just because it's like so incredible, um, you know, Roy's death. But like the fact that, that, that Rooker Howard arrived at that via like semi-improvisation makes so much sense to me because it's like he was so into that character. And the character is such a unique instance of, a, of, a, of what would outwardly be considered an antagonist in a film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like such a complicated portrayal, and he gets there, and and he and he just speaks from the character of Roy in this beautifully strange and emotional, and yet sort of funny because he's like time to die, kind of funny moment, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And and you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about whether or not Roy is really a villain, um, and and I mean, I, I I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think I think for the most part. Um, it seems to me like he's really not, because if you look at the movie, putting him at the center of it, I mean, he's desperate to survive. Like he is being hunted mm-hmm. down. He didn't choose to be born a replicant, you know. He didn't choose mm-hmm. to be this mm-hmm. three-year-old, um, you know, soon-to-die combat model. Like you know, he didn't know mm-hmm. any of that was happening. Um, mm-hmm. And like so, like this is all out of his control, and he's doing a, her- a heroic trajectory, like the sort of thing that we can talk about momentarily about what makes a hero. Like for Roy. Um, he goes on a journey. He sacrifices everything that he knows um, mm-hmm. to protect his kind, his people, right? Um, mm-hmm. And to get back onto the world where he was created, to meet his maker, literally, um, to extend his – not just his life, but the life of, of, the, of the replicants that he brought back with him. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, from any, if if the if the film were just shot with like twenty minutes more Roy footage and twenty minutes less um, Deckard footage, like, I think we would all be talking about Roy like he was just unequivocally the hero of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so mm-hmm. it's so interesting that be, just because of the way it's edited and because of the of the fact that like Deckard isn't the one gouging eyes out, you know, that we just sort of think of him as being heroic. But in, in yes. a lot of ways, he's he's really not. And it's and it's amazing because so many films don't take that nuance now. You know, like there are mm-hmm. these archetypes mm-hmm. that everything has to like just sort of fit into. And Blade, Blade Runner is like it's so unclear who the fuck anybody is. Like not even just as a character or as a functional part of the story, but just as like if they're human or not. You know, like we don't even know yeah. most of the yeah. time. So. Yeah. yeah, and I, I, I totally agree, and I think that's what makes Blade Runner fascinating, and really there's that universal question, who are we? And what does that mean? And why are we here on this earth? Why are we here? Why did humans evolve? Why are we here? Um, that's a fundamental question we ask ourselves in ways, different ways every day, you know, as certain sections of the world plunge into chaos and to destruction and to a circus— White House. Um, <laughs> um, but really, who are we and who reflects us? You know, and I, I think Roy, like you said, he also represents the underclass. Yeah. There's this class of people who are deemed not worthy. Yes, they're a little bit, maybe they've been dangerous or whatever, but really only that danger was them wanting to survive. That's what it was about. And that mode of survival has been deemed as a threat. Mm-hmm. And I think about you 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 can compare and contrast the treatment of replicants to the treatment of Native Americans. Oh, sure. The treatment of African Americans as you're not even allowed on here. Oh, why are they walking the streets? Get the patrol out there and get them mm-hmm. and do something with them and eliminate right. them because they shouldn't be in this neighborhood. I mean, that's what America was like for many, many years. Um, in some ways, that's what America is like in some situations. Yeah. And I don't want to, I'm not trying to make this political, but I'm just trying to say it's, they represent far more than just androids. They represent um, a class of people that were created. And it, just like our history, where we created a system of slavery, 
And then we decided that these people who are slaves are also not just slaves, they're subhuman. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter that Roy or Pris or Zora um, or Rachel or what's the other guy's name um, who was who gets killed in the beginning or who um, shoots the other guy oh, in the Brian beginning. Oh, Brian James' character. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God, I can't think of his name. But he's fucking yeah. amazing. He's um, a great actor. Yeah, yeah he James. is. Um, and, uh, you know, they've, they've all been kind of put in this role. You're a replicant. That's what you are. That's what you've been created to do. You've been created to serve us. Um, and it's weird too, because if you think about Rachel, who I think is a hero mm -hmm. or maybe the hero of, of Blade Runner, Rachel was passing like a light skinned black woman. Right. She was passing. And then all of a sudden, oh, we just found out you're, you're not what you thought you are. You're not what we thought you were. You got to go. Right. Get rid of her. Right. And so her world. All of a sudden, Rachel is a part of society, and she, or in the beginning, Rachel's a part of society, and she's great. Then she realizes, oh no, there's someone going to be after me to end my life. What do I do? Where do I go? Do I go north? Will you come after me? Will they come after me? Right. Um, she's been cast into the the throwaway ends of society. But before she was working in the Tyrell Corporation, thinking she was royalty. Yeah, I mean, she's literally in an, in an almost impenetrable fortress, you know, like as like a personal yeah. assistant to like one of the most powerful people on the planet. Um, by the way, it was uh, Leon. It was Brian James's character. Leon. Yeah, I, I don't yes, know. I, I couldn't yes. remember that either. But yeah, it's, it's Leon. But totally. you know, that's, that's a really cool point. That uh, is something else we should explore at some point about whether because she is passing, um, and then and then when when she's told what she is when she realizes it. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of character, a lot of lesser characters would lose their minds, you know. Like, like she, she's told that, like, not only is uh, everything that she knows um, recast, but it's somebody else's memories, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it's like incredibly, incredibly powerful stuff. And Rachel is also like Roy, and Rachel saves Deckard's life, and then Roy saves Deckard's life. So these replicants he's been sent to destroy have saved his mm -hmm. life. So what do you do now? Um, they are usually the hero does the saving. So Roy who's the hero? The right? of, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you know, uh, also these questions. I think also Blade Runner. I know we're talking about heroes, but just quickly, Blade Runner really tells a story of you know um, it, it 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 can show people if they're willing to see. What life is like being different? What life is like growing up a different skin color? Your eyes look different. What life is like where you look normal or you look like a part of the ruling class, but you're LGBT mm -hmm. or you're trans. Or autistic or and something, I, I, you know? Or, or autistic, yeah. yeah. Or or you're, or maybe you're, uh, uh, what's the term for someone who's brilliant? Um, like a savant? Not, a savant, yeah. and you cannot communicate to people the way that right, most right. people communicate. You communicate completely differently, and so everybody thinks that you're one way, and then you start talking about things that people don't even comprehend, right. and so then they all back away from you. The replicants really are the stand-in for that, for that treatment, for that, for that experience of people who are different, mm -hmm. people who've been, who've been labeled as, you're different, you don't belong, because we say so. And... Um, and these same people who've been deemed different end up being the hero. 
And it's interesting because if you know to sort of maybe to extend this metaphor or this out this illusion out a little bit, um, if if Deckard is actually replicant, which is something that you know, and I know we can have many more arguments about, but um, but 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 it, it just you know for the sake of this conversation, if he is, um, and he's being turned against replicants. Uh, he's sort of like in in slavery times, like the slave master, right? Who was like a slave that was given, um, you know, uh, better treatment because he was like willing yeah. to be sadistic and enforce things on yes. his fellow slaves. Yes. So like, there's that whole layer of metaphor too, and and that like, you know, it, the 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 more ambiguous they make his humanity, the more striking that becomes, and you start wondering why the replicants are the ones who keep saving his lives. You know, like you start wondering why Rachel <laughs> they- because they know what life that life is precious. That's why. Right. right. Because Roy knew that life is precious. Oh, that's a good point. And that I, you yeah. know, and so that's why he saves Decker. Yeah. Because he realizes I want to live. How can I hold on to this idea of life and how precious it is, and let this man die? Yeah. You know, and it's a cool point so, because like the the humans in Blade Runner are like the rejects, right? Like they're the ones who weren't allowed to go off world. Um, and they're like, you know, for, for all these various reasons, they're like the lower class. They're the sort of subjugated humans who of course are in turn subjugating the replicants that they're building. But like fundamentally, like there are people who like are, uh, living sort of these shadow lives. Like, you know, there's 120 something million people in this city. It is like incredibly choked with smog. It's like this, you know, this like really desolate, oppressive cityscape where everybody, nobody, nobody looks each other in the eye. Nobody gets each other's noodle orders, right? Nobody listens to each other. You know, it, it's just like kind of this <laughs> yeah. extremely dystopian place. So, so you yeah. get the sense that like without these replicants being there, that um, you wouldn't, think of life as having any intrinsic value, you know, in that, in that mm-hmm. society. But mm-hmm. it's crazy. You're right that the people who know that they're dying, not even the people, sorry, the, the synthetics who know that they're dying are the ones who choose to live in the most um, extreme way and will do anything for mm-hmm. life. And um, and in and, and doing so, they, they give Deckard some sort of an appreciation for it and enable his ultimate heroic act, right, which is how the film ends, where he decides to go mm-hmm. on the run with Rachel. Like, that's a, obviously mm-hmm. a, huge, a huge deal. And in, in that moment... That's how he kind of becomes the hero, I think. You know? Yeah, I agree. And I think also Rachel s- saves Deckard twice, and I hit on this earlier. She saves him twice. She saves him physically, but her love saves him emotionally. Mm-hmm. He's just, When we meet Deckard, he's kind of void of anything. He's void of personality. He's just sitting there eating. He doesn't want to be bothered. He's Everything's just like, okay, I'll go. I don't, I'm done. I don't want to do this. Yeah, he's just he's like just, tired. He's, like depre- he's depressed. It's yeah. like classic clinical depression, he, right? Like totally, he doesn't even totally. want to get dressed. He's just sort of sitting there eating and drinking in his in his crappy apartment, you know, with these pictures of, of family members that he's no longer in contact with all over the place. Like, totally. And you know, uh, again, some little real talk. I mean, I I've been listening to, and I've said this a few times on our podcast. I've been listening to the soundtrack to Blade Runner nonstop, right, nonstop, right, right. the full unabridged. And I've been going through my own depression lately, and I really identify, like, where do I belong? All my friends are in other cities, thousands of miles away. I have no friends out here. Um, and this kind of feeling lost, and I'm really identifying with Deckard these days. Um, but, so, aside from that, that's really what why Blade Runner is front and center for mm-hmm. me. Um, and also, it's a good oasis away from Alien. But And it's also just, um, like, one of the greatest films, like, ever made. 
Um, totally, I, I remember totally. like I was going not to get off topic because I want to return to what we were just talking about, but I, I, uh, we only have digital copies of it now because and VHS copies of it because like I have like three different VHS cuts, but I don't have like the yeah. Blu-ray of the final cut. Yeah, uh, I need that too. Yeah, so so we were like driving around the other day, and I was like, I'm going to go to Barnes and Noble because they have a display that's like the 100 greatest films of all time according to some poll, and I was like, I guarantee I'm going to like walk in there and Blade Runner is going to be one of the like they're going to have it because it's going to be on that display, and sure enough, there it was yeah. in the hundred greatest. Wow. And I was like, how could it not like how how could it not be like how can you have a better dystopian science fiction movie than Blade Runner? It's a true yeah. masterwork. Yeah. But I, I think what you said was really powerful about um about Deckard uh, giving you a window to deal with your own um, issues and and I think that's like super super amazing and I think that uh, part of why we gravitate towards these characters um, part of why I was attracted to those Marvel superheroes as a kid was the same thing because it makes you feel less alone and it makes you feel like your experience is valid yes it makes you feel yes. like your experience is worth writing a fucking movie about right mm-hmm. it, 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 it it helps you see that there's worth to the way that you're seeing things that people who have done amazing things people who have traversed universes have felt depressed have felt locked off have felt alone and then they've gone on to do incredible things you know yeah yeah and that, that absolutely is like so fundamental to me about about a hero is like there are people who don't like it, it, they, they 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 have to find within themselves and within the people around them, the strength to supersede what they're given in life. That is like mm-hmm. true heroism to me, you know? Yeah, I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with you. And I, I think kind of to pivot back to Rachel a little bit, yeah. uh, her, just talking about her love saving Decker, her love wakens, wakes him up. Mm-hmm. It wakes him up where he's first, he comes over to, she comes over to his apartment and he's annoyed by her totally annoyed by her like and he's saying all these things that are just daggers in her mm-hmm. daggers in her yeah he's oh, being a, sorry he's being a i'm wrong yeah totally and he's like oh sorry i'm wrong it's all wrong it's all lies <laughs> just go home just go home or whatever you know um and he won't he's like you want a drink and he's about to pour her a drink and she runs off and there's a look that he gives and something's changing in him like hey he's seeing her differently and then um, he asks her out, and he's like, "I don't." She's like, "I don't go to those kinds of places." Right, he pulls um, her from the bar. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's interested. He's 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 fascinated by this girl, this beautiful woman. She's not a girl. Um, is that is that why he is, is that why you think he does that? I think yeah. so. I think he's something's been like what 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 changes uh, when he's at that bar? Like, I, I mean, obviously because he's looking for the snake scale, but like, but like, what is what is the what? Why why does he call her from that spot? Do you think? Well, this is after the death of Zora. Oh, it's after. So it's after. Feeling, okay, right, right, right. Yeah, so this is right after the death of Zora. Right. Um, so he's feel. I think he's feeling a little shitty about himself. I think he is intrigued by Rachel. He had a long discussion with her during the Void Comp test, mm-hmm. um, and so she declines. So she says no. But then all of a sudden, you see her on the streets, in the background, um, watching, mm-hmm. and he. And I think he notices eventually, but then she comes in and saves. I think the big trigger was she saves his life in that when Leo's about to mm-hmm. or Leon's Leon, about yeah. to destroy him and she saves his life. Right. And then he's 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 committed to her. Yep. He's like and then, then it kind of it kind of unspools from there. Mm-hmm. But really it's this it's this connection they both made, like we don't know who we are, but we know who we are when we're with each yeah. other. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's 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 cool. Um 
do you want to read some of the stuff from the bulletin that people submitted about heroes sure. in their lives? You want to let's, do some of that? Let's let's totally do that because uh, I think there's some there's some really cool stuff in there, um, and it touches on some people that we haven't you know brought up yet. Um, yeah, do you want me to do the first one? Sure, sure. All right. So uh, so so and, and if and if we uh, mispronounce these names, please by all means you know let us know. But uh, but Josue David Robles. Uh, from the Wayland Yutani Bulletin said, uh, it's going to have to be Captain Picard. He says, I'm a Star Wars fan through and through. Yep. Uh, but no Star Wars character <laughs> comes to the depth that is Captain Jean Luc Picard. He's confident, smart, combat effective, thoughtful, commanding, hard, etc. All the qualities that make a great leader and just an all around human being. He's a Starfleet cap- captain that I would follow over Kirk, over Cisco. He's just the best all around. Um, Interesting. So before we talk more about this, I, so I, I have a, a confession to make that is going to make my nerd cred go down, like just plummeting. <laughs> it's that, like I, for some reason, I have never gotten into Star Trek, um, and I think it started off when I was a kid as a sort of like the same thing with Superman versus Batman. Like I kind of became a Star Wars person and not a Star Trek person, mm-hmm. and I just never got mm-hmm. back and bridged that divide. But uh, mm-hmm. one of my best friends is uh, this guy Drew Jackson, and he's a huge Picard devotee. So uh, I asked him if he could like help me understand the character a little bit. And he said that uh, Picard is an exemplar of the ideals of the Federation, a diplomat, curious observer, and an advocate for scientific inquiry. But his heroics as a commander, whether resisting barbaric torture at the hands of the Cardassians and surviving assimilation by the Borg, show Picard to be a commanding officer of the highest order willing to sacrifice his own safety to save his crew and uphold the ideals of his command. Unlike some other captains who are occasionally ruled by their own id and self-interest, Um, And he says not just a slight against Kirk, but mostly, Picard never loses the thread that command is an obligation to serve others above all else. And that really resonated with me because I was thinking, you know, we've talked so far about sacrifice and about character arc, but that idea of um, having a purpose that is to to serve, I think is really important too for a hero. You know? Yeah, yeah, I I would absolutely agree with you. I mean, I I don't. Picard never resonated with me, and I. So, I but I'm you're not, a Star Trek I'm, person. I, I'm I'm a closeted Trekkie. I don't think okay. there's anything wrong with Trek. It's not, it's not heady sci-fi for me. It's it's very popcorny. Look at your Alien Covenant cup. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, from Hardy's. Um, I I uh, I. Yeah, Picard. I I mean, no. Hey, I I enjoy Star Trek when I watch it, and I usually when I was a kid and. I, and I watch it now. I'm like, I watch the new series coming out too. I mean, Star Trek interests me mm-hmm. um, just because it's space and it's a new, other strange worlds. So that will always intrigue me. Um, but yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I would say if there's a, a character in Star Trek that resonates with me, um, I don't know, probably not so much. Um, I, I enjoy Star Trek when I read it or uh, when I see it. Um, but it doesn't really resonate with me that deeply. I don't really think about it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Me neither. But, um, but I, I would love to get more, uh, more into it, you know, so yeah. maybe, maybe someday. Um, actually, can I tell you a very brief story about that cup? Sure. <laughs> so, so, uh, this is a shout out to my parents, uh, who are great. Um, they, they knew that I was really excited about covenant coming up and, and they also knew that, well, they knew through me that, that Hardy's had this weird licensing deal where they were having these like these promotional cups come out yeah but there's yeah. no hardies up you know i'm in boston there's nothing like that up here but but they were on vacation in florida 
And I was like, you know, it would really mean a lot to me if you could find like a Hardee's that had this cup. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, well, like, you know, we'll see what we can do. And they were out down there for like a month. So I figured they forgot about it. But then they texted me. Uh, they had driven three hours off the highway because they found they pulled around all these different Hardee's. And they found one that had stockpiled like all of the Covenant cups. And so, wow. they, so they got me like 30 Covenant cups. So that's, that's like all we use at our house is these freaking Covenant cups now. So I just <laughs> shout out mom and dad. Uh, you guys are freaking amazing. So thank you for that. That's awesome. That is so awesome. Um, you want to read the next one? Um, so, yeah. yeah. So we have Ken Sobecki um, says, I'm just a big, as big of a Star Wars fan as I am the Alien films. Despite Han Solo's popularity, I've always been a fan of Luke Skywalker. Growing up, watching his development from immature, unprepared farm boy to individual not entirely sure he was ready for what lay ahead, but choosing to take it head on. Anyway. His heart was always on his sleeve as someone who struggled early in my life to show emotion in appropriate ways and at the right times. He was a character I, I most followed and tried to identify with. To say I'm excited about The Last Jedi is an understatement. Oh my god, dude, I'm so with you on that one. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, excited. me too. Ryan Johnson's a, a, a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. Brick and Looper are just phenomenal Yeah, and, and bo both are so much better than they need to be. They're like such standouts yeah. in their genre, and I, yeah, totally agree yeah. with you. You know, it's funny, Luke, yeah. you know, we always, uh, you know, like my wife and I are, are big Star Wars dorks, and we always like make fun of him in, in the first film because he's like so, uh, or I guess in, in A New Hope, not the first film, but he's like so whiny. Like he's such this like little mm -hmm. petulant, like little idiot, you know, like when he's complaining about wanting to go to Tashi Station to pick up some power. Like he's like so, uh, you know, he's like nothing. And then you see him. Like, you know, at the end of uh, Force Awakens, and he's like this, like, legendary, like, galactically legendary hero. You know what I mean? And you think this arc from this, like, this, like, little uh, kid, like, playing with X-Wings in his, in his parents and his uh, aunt and uncle's farm to, like, being, like, the most revered warrior of the entire Jedi Rebellion. Mm -hmm. You think, like, man, mm -hmm. like, that, that is – if he can do it, then – and we can too. And actually, you know, Ken brings up a good point, which is similar to what you were saying about how um, part of why he identifies with Luke is that he struggled also in his life to, to be appropriate, you know, to show like emotion in ways that are like predictably appropriate. Um, and Luke also, of course, kind of deals with that. So yeah, yeah. Kind of allowed him to have somebody to like look up to. So I think that's super cool. That is awesome. Um, yeah. Want to do the next one? Uh, sure. So Oscar Ferreria, um, T. T-800 from the Terminator films for its brutal sympathy, which I find is interesting. It is It is interesting because depending on which one of the films you're talking about, you know, you're talking about a, a very different character. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I got to say, like, T-2 for me was another one of those movies that, like, I was just obsessed with as a kid. I mean, I, I thought that was mm -hmm. like, just the coolest thing ever. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, actually, uh, so so a little, a little funny side story about um, the T-800 is Lance Henriksen was originally – considered for the part um really yeah but cameron wanted him to play it um and and i, I just think like what the implications would be now with the fan because you know we're, we're, all, we're all like having these talks yes. about a blade runner and alien during the universe could you fucking imagine if bishop were also the t-800 <laughs> you know we have this like the, the amount of podcast episodes devoted to that oh gosh but the other funny yeah. thing is that oj simpson was also a finalist for it and ironically cameron famously said that he couldn't picture such a nice guy playing a cold-blooded killer which is Oh, that's a pretty funny. Uh, incredibly awkward thing to say, but yeah, no, but yeah, but I, I totally get that. I, I was a huge fan of Terminator yeah. as a kid too. Um, Interesting. I, I enjoyed Terminator. I did. I didn't. It doesn't resonate. I mean, 
parts of it resonates, but I don't really think about Terminator too much. Probably it's been sullied so much by the sequels. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, did, did you you saw actually, Genesis, right? Oh, no. I turned it off. I couldn't watch I know, it anymore. I watch it, it, was, it, was, it was awful, and I couldn't believe James Cameron got behind it. Yeah. Um, saying this is the sequel I will always envision. Like, th- and they totally miscast uh, Daenerys as um, Sarah, Sarah Connor. Connor. She just yeah. was wrong. She was wrong for that role. Yeah. The movie was just convoluted. I couldn't even understand what was happening. Anyways, I don't even. No <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the next one that uh, that was submitted uh, was uh, by Vlad Guron or Gurin. And he said, uh, Leto II Atreides, the uh, god emperor from the Dune series, for his sacrifice. So, so, I, so I, I, again, I'm, I'm completely decimating my, my geek cred here, but I have not read any of the Dune novels. Um, but I, I assure you they're in my queue as we speak. Um, but from what I understand, are, are, for, for, first off, are you like a Dune guy? I love the movie. I love Fincher's. You love, or, you love uh, the lo- David Lynch film. The David Lynch film, I love it. Okay. Yeah, um, I think it's great. I mean, I, there's obviously plenty of flaws. I, I, I'm fully aware of its issues um, and its um, narrative issues for sure. But I, uh, there's something about the character of Paul Moadib, mm. um, who is essentially the Messiah, kind of coming out of the desert. There's similarities between him and Luke, um, kind of called to a higher calling. Cool. Um, but he toward, you know, by the end of the film, have you seen it? I would imagine. Uh, I, I saw it uh, a long, long time ago. Yeah. Uh, by the end of the film, he is, he is almost like a guy. Yeah, his, right. his voice, his voice, it comes you know, through everybody, right? All of these like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I love him. I don't know if I see him as a hero. He's more of a, just like a Messiah. Savior. Um, like a, a savior, totally. Kind of figure. Totally. Yeah. Total. Yeah. Neo. Um, because by the end, you know, they have these modules that they use to use sound and use those sound as, as a weapon. Mm-hmm. By the end of it, uh, Paul doesn't need it. He can just do it from his voice and it breaks, it cracks open the walls and the, and it's awesome and it's powerful. It feels divine. Like he's become the right hand of God and it's amazing. That's pretty sweet. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what Denis Villeneuve yeah. Do. Oh my God. That's so exciting. Yeah. Um, that's going to be like a full on two and a half hour orgasm. That's what that's <laughs> be. Like, like literally, I, I know I said this on the last episode that I was on, but like everything that Denny does, uh, it, it, uh, it will be transcendent. I mean, like I, I would, every film that I've seen of his has been like such an incredible experience for me, which is why mm-hmm. 49, I'm like, there's no question in my mind. Like, like, you, you know me, I'm, I'm definitely a covenant fan. Um, I, I'm kind of enjoying this prequel direction that they're going in. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with Ridley's direction overall, but holy shit, if Denny were able to direct the next Alien film, I, I would like, I would be the most insufferably, like I'm an annoying fan about this shit, like I'm talking about it too much. Yeah, yeah. I would be like committed to a fucking insane asylum because I would not be able to stop <laughs> talking about how excited I was about these movies. Yeah. But I guess, I, so this character I think is not in that film, is it? The Leto 2? Leto too. It must be the father. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's the I, Paul's father. Is that who it is? Okay, yeah. Oh, unless it's um. No, I, I think it's unless like, it's I, Paul Moadib's son. Because I think he comes yes. in in the second novel. You're right. The children of children Dune. of June. Yeah, exactly. And so, I, so I guess like his whole thing is that he willingly becomes merged with a sandworm. Yes, um, yes. And in doing so, puts the puts himself in the universe on the golden path. So it's the same kind of a sense of like sacrifice. Also, I apologize. You're probably in a lot of emails from Dune fans saying that I butchered the mythology there, but you know, <laughs> so it's something like that. But but the idea of being sacrificed, you know. 
I need to read the novel, to be honest with you. I used to be a big reader when I was younger, but I'm not as an adult. Uh, I'm very visual. I'm just a visual guy. That's always how I have been as a child. And and uh, But I used to read all the time. All yeah. the time. I would just read books and books. And I haven't really read a book in years. You know, uh, But I, I'm always reading. I just don't read books. Do you ever do audio? What? Oh, uh, yeah, sometimes. Although I tried to do... Uh, alien out of the shadows and i couldn't finish it it just bored me oh and then i tried yeah and then i tried to do river of pain and it was just you couldn't do it too much do it, yeah. yeah which is funny because here we are putting on an audio drama but I, it's not going to be like any audio drama anyone's heard no, it's not. super um, i'm super uh, excited for that um and, and if it's okay i'd like to just sort of give a teaser and say that we are recording a little preview for people um so like be on the lookout for that perfect organism fans because it's so it's pretty sweet so awesome yeah. i'm so excited yeah um so last but not least on this and we can discuss this um this last comment damien sears uh cooper from interstellar for his cocksure and straightforward motion what do you think what are your thoughts on cooper yeah, I, I don't i love cooper but i don't think about him as cocksure and straightforward yeah because he's because he's not for a lot of the film I, I guess it's more that he's so capable you know like that he's mm -hmm. sort of like the best at the best who could have been in that position to me like the heroic aspect of him and this is probably influenced by by my being a parent is uh is is what he what he does for his daughter um and and yeah I, I, this is a movie that although i love it i've only seen it twice and i haven't seen it in years like since it came out so if i'm really? if i'm if my recollections are getting screwed up you know just correct me but but um in the end when he kind of willingly enters that black hole um the the idea being to like go through a multiverse portal and come out pushing the dust right on the bookshelf so that his daughter sees the message from him and knows what's like yeah. me like that um as a as an act of sacrifice is like just incredibly profound. And actually that gets me to something I wanted to touch on with Ripley really briefly. So I'm going to table because I want you to talk about Cooper first. But, yeah, yeah. but after that, if, if possible, I'd love to talk about Ripley for a second. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. But, uh, but, but go, but go ahead about Cooper. Like, like who's he to you? Um, Cooper, uh, I, I don't think, I think he's at the end of his, the end of his wits. Um, you know, earth at that point, I don't think it's a dystopian earth. I think it's a earth that has been mined for everything it could possibly give. Yeah. Where, I mean, it's almost gone. Yep. Almost all of the crops are gone. I mean, it, earth has given humanity as much as it possibly can. And it's saying no more. I have no more in me. Right. And so, uh, and I think Cooper is really, uh, echoing that. And he used to be a pilot and he's kind of lost his way. He's not a pilot anymore. He's kind of stuck on this farm that he doesn't want to be. He's kind of like Luke in the se <laughs> yeah, in that sense yeah. where he's this farm boy now and he doesn't he's got kids of his own. His wife has died. Um and uh he's kind of lost himself in some ways and then he be, um it's reengaged and he reengages NASA and NASA says, "No, we see in you what you could potentially deliver mm -hmm. to humanity and cooper knows it's a sacrifice but at the same time he knows that i'm going to see my daughter again and we'll be the same age but i'll see her again right you know right right um so he sacrifices her childhood um obviously he eventually sacrifices more than that um but uh by the end of interstellar i mean i'm in tears with oh him. my god i, mean, I know it's so beautiful and and his re-emergence and his reunion, his reunion with his daughter, um, oh, I just, um, and the sense of that cyclical life being a cyclic, the cyclical thing, and this pattern of l life and love, and what that means, and our connection to each other. I mean, what Cooper goes through is just, 
the sacrifices he gives. I mean, he finds his daughter again, but she's at the end of her life. Right. And he's got the rest of his life to live. Right. You right. Know? Right. Um, and then she says, go find, um, what's her name's character? I can't remember her Jessica name. Jessica Chastain? Right now, but ask Anne Hathaway. Oh, Anne Hathaway. Right. 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 Cause yeah, she, she goes, go find her. She's off on that planet. And now he has, he's in a world that's capable of doing uh-huh. that. He could just go right to that planet. Um, and he realizes that's the meaning of life. Cause he's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Mm-hmm. And he says, go find her. She's waiting for right. you. You know? Um, but oh, yeah, there's something, that, there's something mean, about the, the portrayal of time that just fucking destroys me. In movies, yes, and I, yes. I don't know if that's just because yeah. I, I mean I am personally so fixated on the passage of time. It's like something that I, I'm always Me fucking too. thinking about. And Me when too. a film Me is too. able to really manipulate that, like Interstellar, or, yeah. or I mean, to me, Arrival is a perfect example of yes. of a yes. film that just uh, it just it just sweeps you back and makes you aware of like the of like the the huge arc of an existence and of a life and of of, of repetition and of um, the eternal return, like these things that are. Uh, so powerful, you know. Like I, I, there was this thing on Reddit recently where somebody made a chart that showed that broke down like the average life. Like it had like one square per year of like an average lifespan, and then it had like th- that broke it down into months, um, and then it broke it down into weeks, and then it broke it down into days. And I and I spent like twenty minutes just scrolling down this chart and looking at how few days there really are in a life, and I was so transfixed by that. And I and I, I think when a film is able to really make us value the time that we have, the way that Interstellar mm-hmm. does and the way that Arrival does, it's so it's so transformative. But yeah, I, I think yeah. Cooper's a really cool character, and I can't wait to go back and and watch it again. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Coop, Cooper and Interstellar is a film I think about on the daily. Yeah. Um, and that passage of time and what how how short life is, and that sounds cliche, but it's so it's true. so true. I mean, it's so it true. is, especially when you, you have children. Dude, it, it is um, it is so it, it is so relentlessly fast. Like the the past, like our so our sons. So Jude, uh, who will listen to this podcast, he listened to the entire last episode that I was on, and he actually he actually enjoyed it. So Jude is funny. about to turn four, um, and Henry, our youngest, is is uh, is nearly ten months. Um, and uh, but 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 like Jude, you know, it felt like he was born an hour ago. You know. Like yeah. I can still yeah. I can still completely place myself in that place where he yeah. was where he was brought into the world and, and I can I can I can feel I can like I, I can sense it you know I can feel the way the light fell on my body in that moment um, mm-hmm. and yet and yet like now he's this full fledged person who has his own interests and who can build Lego models on his own and like who's <laughs> just like this incredibly brilliant kid who. Uh, has somehow developed all these things in this incredibly short period of time. And it's like, and, and, I, and I look at myself and it's like, we just had our five year um, anniversary of our wedding. And, uh, oh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And it was like, it was like, it was so fast, you know, like it, it, you just turn around and life is just hurtling by you. And I think having kids, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you too with your nieces and nephews and things like you see this, this, the rapidity of the passage of time on their Faces totally. and on their bodies, you see them getting older, yeah. and you think, "Man, like I am just hurtling towards oblivion." Yeah, uh, you know, it's just truly true. Like I look at my sister, and when I see her face, I still see my little sister. Yeah, you know, and we still have that same connection and banter between us as we had when we were kids. We can connect the same way we can we connected as children. And then I look at her son, who's sixteen. Wow. Who I fed? Who I fed? I remember feeding, watching Baby Einstein with him and feeding him. Um, cereal and calling my sister like Lizzie 
He's eating everything. What do I feed him? She goes, just feed. And she's like, feed him as much as he wants to eat. And I said, okay. And I look at this boy who's this young man who's 16, and I can't place him. Yeah. You know? Like, just the passage of time. Like, I remember thinking, wow, I'll be 41 when he's 16. Yeah. And here and I there am. you are. Here yeah. I fucking right, am. Right, right. Um, it's insane. And thinking, yeah, yeah, it's totally insane. Um, and I, I get totally. that with, with my sister, too. And actually, uh, a shout out to Claire, who wanted me to bring up Buffy as a science fiction hero. <laughs> who I, I have very little experience with, but she says that Buffy has also made a lot of sacrifices. So I'll, I'll throw that out there too. But it, it's true. You, you just don't Whatever. realize how fast time is gone. <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, it's just here. So I, I think, yeah, you know, Cooper's awesome. I'm going to watch Interstellar again. I feel all emotional about time passing now. I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling good. Yeah. I'm feeling ready to talk I, do, I do too. I think as I get older and uh, going through – Emotional things or personal things, feeling like life is stalled, mm-hmm. but at the same time it's stalled economically or in certain ways, but time hasn't stalled. Right, right. Life is um, – and reconciling those things. I know we kind of – I know listeners, we've kind of gone off on a tangent, but this is what makes conversations interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, um, I, it, it's fascinating. Um, it's – even – the way we live, like I remember when I was a kid thinking about science fiction and the future and flying cars. Uh-huh. And here we are with drones that are – the technology of drones is now making flying cars possible. Yeah. We have these iPads and these phones that are these thin little tablets that we – and I, I sit on my bed all the time scrolling on my iPad thinking, oh my god, I'm in Blade Runner. Oh my god, know, it's, it's crazy, Trek. isn't it? Like, like you know? when when I can talk to like Siri or to like our Amazon device, and and I can and I can just like say something, and it can do it for me. It's it's an, it's incredible. And actually, you know, we yeah. were watching Blade Runner, like I mentioned again last night, and uh, and it was it's so funny to think that that's like supposed to be happening in basically a year and a half from from right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you think like yeah. in some ways it's so accurate, and in other ways it's it's obviously not. But like, but in a lot of ways it is really prescient. Um, like for example, when Deckard is talking to like his uh, his like role his um I forgot what the name of the device is, but he's watching he's yeah. enhancing the video clip, the, the photo, yeah. and he's talking to it. And I'm like, that's exactly the way that I talk to Siri. Like that's completely accurate, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's yeah, that's just fucking crazy. And I, I can't wait to see how 2049 plays with that. Speaking of the passage of time. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Um, I say that we kind of. Uh, Fire off some of our other, uh, kind of quickly fire off. We can go through them a little bit, yeah. but uh, our other heroes. But let's kind of embrace who we really want to talk about, and that is Ripley. Yeah, no, let's just let's just talk about. Unless you got somebody else specific you want to touch. No, I mean, like I wanted to kind of mention uh, for the sake of posterity, Fox Mulder, Dana Scully. Mm-hmm. I I see them as heroes. You know, I see them as heroes and whistleblowers. I think they're a, a whistleblower is a hero. Yeah. Um, they've they've sacrificed their physical life in some ways and their, their economic life, you know, to tell the truth, to speak the truth. Fox Mulder is someone who I carry in me. I feel like I'm, you know, like I, I've, I, I've lived my life being a whistleblower, you know, whether it was the church that I grew up mm-hmm. in, whether it was the company that I work for currently, I'm meeting with the corporate tomorrow oh, wow. because of a letter that I wrote. Yeah. Which is, it's not anything negative. It's positive things. Um, so, the sci-fi hero whistleblowers are, you know, people who have touched me. And, uh, I would say you mentioned the dark crystal, yeah, yeah. um, Kira, who's the girl elf Gelfling from the dark crystal. I see her as a hero, even though I identify more with Jen, mm-hmm. I felt like Kira lost her life 
in in the pursuit of truth, in the pursuit of good. in the pursuit of a greater good. Um, right. Yes, right. absolutely. Um, and I don't know how big of a Dark Crystal fan you are. Um, I, I'm becoming more of one since you got me into it, but I, I'm still. Yeah. Did, not, you, have, did you watch no, it? Yet? I haven't seen it yet. It's in the queue, but oh I've, I've read like God. I've read like ten articles about it in the meantime. Okay. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. I got um, and of course, there's a new series coming on Netflix too. Yeah. So we'll see what the new heroes have to offer. So those are a few, and then one last one. Um, and this is a bit. Uh, um, you might not know this, but you might. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer is in the movie called Lady Hawk, mm. and she plays a character named Isabeau, and her co-star is Roy Batty, ah. Howard. And so the the it's in the eighties. Uh, what's his name is in it too? Um, Michael. Uh, um, he was in War Games. What's his name? Um, he was married to Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, Matthew Broderick. I, Matthew Broderick. Yeah. He's in it. He's kind of a little bit the comic relief, but Lady Hawk is essentially. A, a film is kind of a fantasy sci-fi or whatever more of a fantasy i guess um about these lovers who she was kind of uh a princess to some degree and he was the captain of the guards and they had this love but this this bishop this priest was in love with her and he realized that he can't couldn't have her so he cursed them both rudger hauer is a wolf by night she is a hawk by day and so they they're always traveling together, but they they don't ever meet. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Um, so during the during the night, she has the wolf, and there's there's times when um, during the transition between night and day, where they're both transitioning between wolf and bird, mm-hmm. they see each other as human for a split second. Wow! Um, and it's beautiful. I, I have beautiful, I have but... I have literally never heard of this film. Lady like, Hawk. I, yeah, I don't think I've ever heard that soundtrack word before. Amazing. Like I've never heard really? yeah, I've never heard anybody yeah. talk about it. And what? Michelle Pfeiffer is luminous. She's gorgeous. Like there are women that I would bed down with, and she is one of them. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, she's, she's incredible. And she, she's got this short hair, um, and she's just luminous wow. in these and there's this transformation scene too that I love and that I can rewind and watch over and over and over. But I feel like she is the hero of uh she 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 I don't want to even give the movie away yeah, to anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Well, I'm go, personally going to watch it now that you've mentioned it. So well, yeah, yeah, go and yeah. see it. I mean, Rudger Hauer is at his, I mean, the height of his career. He's right. amazing. He's transcendent. Yeah. Go and see it. Sweet, sweet, sweet. You know, Burke, I don't know which species is worse. You don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage. So you want to talk about Ripley so. a little bit? Let's engage. Ripley. All right, all right. So, yes. so, uh, so, so, I was thinking about how to approach this because I know that she's somebody who means a lot to both of us and to everybody who will be listening to this podcast. And I was thinking, um, if you, as a little thought experiment, if you take away everything but the first film, everything but Alien, um, is she a hero? And on top of that, if you take away Jones, is she or is she a hero? Um, and I, I kind of think like if you if you look at Ripley as a character in just the first film, um, without going back and getting Jones, I don't think she's actually a heroic character. I think she's impressive. She's a survivor. She's a survivor, yeah. but she's not she's not acting in the interest of any greater good. She's not like acting beyond herself for any, any moral purpose. She's not even making a sacrifice. But what's so cool and what's so brilliant from a screenwriting standpoint is having that fucking cat who has been the biggest pain in the ass for the entire movie. 
um, and it's in this like little this little vacuum crate, you know. And she keeps like leaving it places while she's being actively chased by the xenomorph. The fact that before she goes to the Narcissus, she goes back and gets the cat. And that one moment to me makes her a hero. The only other thing that kind of suggests heroism is in the extended director's cut where she stumbles into Dallas, you know. Um, but even that, I mean, it's not in the it's not in the actual theatrical release of the film. And on top of that, it's not like she's being like super. I mean, you know, she's walking into one of her you know best friends being egg morphed. You know, she's she's gonna like mm-hmm. she's gonna probably yeah, yeah. kill him. You know, if that's what he wants to happen. But um, what what are your thoughts on that? Um, I would agree with you. I think um, she assumes command of the Nostromo at the end, um, and. She would rather not. She'd rather Dallas be there. She'd rather Kane be there. You know, she'd rather uh, Brett be there. But she has to assume. She so she assumes command, and she's focusing everyone because Lambert is beyond. Lambert's gone. She's, gone, she's yeah. so she's so lost in her emotions, and Parker is too. Parker has lost his shit. Yeah. I mean, she's trying to focus him, and he's angry. He's angry that his friends are gone, but she's trying to focus him. Like, if we're going to get out of here, then you need to do your shit. Right. You know, and he's like, she's like, Parker, listen to me. Listen to me. And he's not because he's so he's so belligerent himself. Um, I mean, so let's I be honest. He, he makes... just he just wants to go home and party. You know, he makes it very yeah. clear. He just wants to go home. And yeah. and and you know, at the end of the day, he's been like his best friend has been destroyed. You know, like yeah, right, yeah, yeah he's falling apart too. But even in that yeah. in that instance, so she's still acting out of just like self preservation. Like she knows that she can't have this ballast with her on the narcissus. Like these people mm-hmm. are gonna. She has a better chance of getting off if she has these allies. So what's amazing is that in Aliens, she becomes this like fully fledged. Uh, totally crystallized heroic character where she is like in every possible way what we think of as a hero in a way that's like very genuine and very um, expansive. Like she is suffering from acute post-traumatic stress disorder as I think any of us would be in her situation. Like she is um, having nightmares. She's waking up in cold sweats. She uh, has um, just detonated this incredibly valuable um, freighter ship She's being attacked by the company for doing that. She's going in front of them. Um, she is, uh, and then and then she she willingly reengages because again she does the right thing. Like she has an extremely clear moral compass. So she's brought in. She's she you know they ask her to go and help them to to fight the the xenomorph infestation that they think might be happening, and um, she eventually decides to go and confront that again. So that in itself is such a heroic act. But on top of that. You think about like she's not only reengaging with this nightmare, she's also flying uh, into a situation with people she doesn't know, um, in a situation she's never been a part of. She's not a, a military officer before totally. this, you know. And she's she has no experience with that. And she's being asked but, to trust a company that she has no reason trusting. Yeah, right. Yeah, she she already distrusts. She's already seen Special Order Nine Three Seven. She already knows what's up. Um, but but she she chooses to go and she goes into the. I mean, like I I'm not a, a service member. But I would imagine that if if I were and I was showing up for my first uh, you know training camp or my first assignment, it would be an incredibly um, intimidating experience because it's this whole organization where there's these very tight bonds and these traditions and these expectations um, and like so she's going into that in that situation. But on top of that, as a woman in a in a not entirely but predominantly male outfit, um, where she. Uh, doesn't know anybody except for Burke, you know, who doesn't really count for anything. Um, and she goes there and she um, steps up. And then, like, when the, 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 you know, trained officer in charge of this whole thing 
you know, shits his pants and can't do anything, um, and she knows people are dying, she not only engages with that problem, she drives a fucking APC through a wall yeah. into a hive yeah. filled with the things that have been giving her post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. to save these people that she doesn't even know yeah. because it's the right thing to do. And she does that willingly and she does that bravely without any fanfare, without any ego. She does the right thing again, like she does, you know, in all of these films. And she goes in there, she's very brave. Um, and, uh, and then when it comes to nude, like she is, um, such a, uh, an ama- it's an amazing heroic moment in a much softer way. Um, and I don't, I don't want to say in, in a more, um, prototypically feminine way but in a way like that she is like she's a hero in a very maternal manner too because she um she brings out this uh the the inner um soul of this child who's been through such trauma because ripley is a trauma survivor as well and she knows that like she can communicate and she can get there she brings newt back you know Yeah, yeah and then and then on top of all of that uh you know after everything has gone wrong and she's fought this uh, incredible. She's like gone back into the hive to get Newt, and she's extricated her, um, and gone, you know, almost literally to hell and back. And she gets up on the elevator, and the dropship isn't there. And she's confronted with the queen, and she does to me, which I've said elsewhere, is I think her most heroic act of all, which is she chooses to comfort Newt in what she thinks is their final moments on this planet. So like, you know, faced with no weapon to fight with, faced with no alternative, no escape route, there's nothing. She chooses to hold Newt tight and tell her to close her eyes and she and Ripley will face this horror head on and do whatever she can in that last moment to, to save Newt. And of course, you know, they're evacuated so so it doesn't end up mattering. But that is like such a heroic arc. Absolutely. You know? Um, and I just think that really speaks to me. I, I know you, you love uh, Alien 3 just the same way I do. I know there's a totally. ton to talk about that too. And also, you know, what's interesting too about her relationship with Newt is that Newt opens up to Ripley because she understands that Ripley understands that Ripley's been through some darkness and Newt was kind of shut down. And I don't think you could tell that Newt had a feeling that these people don't understand what's about to happen or what's happening. But then she realizes Ripley understands Ripley gets it, you know, and Ripley also paid her attention in a way that mothers pay attention to children, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because Ripley is a mother herself. Um, Right. But yeah. Totally, um, and she and she takes Newt seriously, which I think is really important. You know, like the other the other um, Marines are are pretty dismissive of her. They're like, "Oh, this is not going to go anywhere." Like she's mute. You know, like why are we wasting yeah. time on this? Like let's just like take her and get out of here. But Ripley chooses to to engage with with Newt. You know, totally. and not for any like tactical reason, just because she's a, a good human. Totally. Know? I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do as I tell you. Okay. Look, your worshipfulness, let's get one thing straight. I take orders from just one person, me. So one day you still alive. And last but not least, I should have talked about this earlier. I know we were going to leave off with Ripley, but uh, Princess Leia from the Star Wars mm. series. Uh, she is probably the first heroine um, that, in my memory, I mean, my first memory of being in the theater uh, was, well, I went to see Jedi, but I, I did go to, uh, my first memory of being in the theater was Return of the, I'm sorry, Empire Strikes Back was my first mm-hmm. memory of being in the theater, but I don't remember the movie too much. Jedi, I was seven, and I saw that when it uh, premiered in the theater with all my friends. Wow, oh, that's um, awesome. But I remember, of course, earlier than that, seeing Star Wars and watching Star Wars over and over and over and having the uh, the uh, the trash compactor scene um, mm-hmm. burned into my mind. But just noticing this woman, this person, who didn't need to be bossed around by 
she was like a female Han Solo. She's like, you don't need to, you don't tell me what to do. You know, she's a character that Hollywood doesn't really write very often in terms of women um, where they're not just or, you know, or if they do write characters like them, she's the bad guy. Like, oh, she's Uh she's uh, kind of trying to uproot the 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 kind of male dominated world that she's in. But really, Princess Leia took control and she goes, no, this is what we're doing. And uh, even though Luke and Han were there to rescue her, she was like, we're doing it my way. And if you have a trouble uh-huh. with that, you know, and then, you know, her that famous line with someone get this walk walking carpet out of my way. Like it's a very <laughs> she's a very Han Solo type of character. Yeah, um, she's a badass. Totally. And she uh, is a leader, too. And she knows and she's has focus and clarity of thought and she knows what needs to be done and she knows uh-huh. what's right. And despite her attitude and her irreverence, she knows what's right. And uh, right. Leia was my first one of my first heroes. Um, and also, like they don't make a point of it, but like you think of, of how powerful she is within that universe. Like she's a member of the Imperial Senate. She yes. commands a rebel alliance unit. She's a princess of Alderaan. She smuggles the fucking plans to destroy the Death Star. She commands a rebel base on Hoth. Like she, she is like a, a really tactically important person who is really respected and listened to. Absolutely. And, and there's no like, oh, like why would we, you know, listen to a, a woman? Like it's like nobody. It's like it's a universe in which um, women at a, at a time when this film was made, you know, women were um, even even less uh, equal in society than they are now. Yeah. Um, and, and this was like this was a woman who was treated as a true superior to basically everybody. Yeah. And commanded incredible respect. Yeah. And, and lastly, I'll just add this. Unfortunately, with Leia, as uh, the Empire Strikes Back released, she was kind of turned into the damsel in distress when something happens to Han and almost like she loses Han. And yes, it's emotional. But instead of her kind of taking charge like Hermione or someone in Harry Potter, uh-huh. she it, she loses herself. And he's like, take care of the princess. Like, she doesn't need taken care of. And Alea yeah. then turned into this kind of, I don't know, this damsel in distress. And then by... By by Jedi, she's just ornament. She's she's ornamental. She's barely uh-huh. wearing anything. She doesn't do anything in Jedi. I mean, the, in the beginning, she's kind of leading the team, but she's. But that's it. I mean, yeah. after that, after she's captured, she like like immediately becomes eye candy. Totally, she becomes uh, like an escort, and then and then for the rest of the movie, yeah, she's like hanging on Han's arm while yeah. he's swinging around the Starlight Pit and shit, and like totally, totally, yeah. and yeah, she's a big change there. They if this, I I believe that. Uh, starting with Jedi and then by the end of uh, I'm sorry, starting with Empire, but by, by the end of Jedi, Leia is eviscerated as a character. She is mm. not the Leia that we are introduced to. She's turned into this kind of flowery, quiet, not much to say princess, and that is not the character we were introduced to. So uh, yeah. I think it really has done a disservice, and in fact uh, Carrie Fisher, rest in peace, um, said to Rid- uh, Daisy Ridley, she goes, you know, really, don't let them put you don't let them put you in a bikini. And I think she meant that in a way like, wow. like wow. take ownership of this role. Because uh, Carrie Fisher realized that she kind of tr- turned into this this stereotypical male um, wet dream, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so much that pe- when people go to Comic-Cons and portray Leah, what do they portray her as? The slave yeah, Leah. The like, this is how you're going to yeah. portray her. You're going to portray her when she's uh, meat for this nasty 
thing, you know, like I, and that yeah, that's really fucked up. Actually, it that's really bugs point. me. It really, really bugs me about her character. And uh, because that that second only to like the cinnamon bun hairstyle in, in the in the first film, like the the slave Leia is, is like the dominant yeah. fandom image of her now. And you're yeah. right, that's that's a disservice. I will say that um, something that was nice about Force Awakens is that she you know emerged as General Leia yes. Organa. She yes. was like powerful again. Um, and, uh, man, I just got to say from a personal standpoint, and I know you are in the same boat and, um, a lot of people are Carrie Fisher's death was, well, was a hard one. Yeah. That was a really hard one. Yeah. I think about that every day, every day. I can't, I think I wake up sometimes and I think Carrie Fisher's dead. Like, I can't even believe it. I can't believe yeah, it. Yeah. That was a huge, a huge hit. Cause yeah. she, I mean, given what she went through personally, um, and, and all the things that she fought and, and all the people she inspired. I mean, like, you know, my wife is uh, an enormous Leia. She has a tattoo of Leia. She's a huge Leia fan. Yeah. And that was like her hero, you know, all throughout and still is. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's a really personally devastating Absolutely. moment when she died because it was, and you know, you realize what the character meant to so many people. It's easy to forget that, but she was a really important person. Absolutely. And I'd say that that's probably a wrap for this episode. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we will have this up shortly, people. Thanks for listening. Cool. I'm Captain Dallas. I'm dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley. Last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off.